0: Could you please turn with me to John's Gospel, Chapter 2. I know you were expecting Hebrews. A few things happened, and uh, we are in John's Gospel this morning. I was uh, studying this and um, for the assessment uh, last week, and I really wanted to preach it um, Again, and given the timing of where we are in the year, I wanted to preach it. I wanted to look at it in more depth. Uh, So, because I cannot help myself, uh, I have um, a full-length sermon on John chapter 2. Jesus cleanses the temple. Immediately after... The Wedding in Cana, uh, which is Jesus turning water into wine, is one of the, which is on its own one of the most well-known stories in Scripture, is the story of Jesus cleansing uh, the temple. And that is the story with the whips, the money changers, tables being overturned, uh, that, uh, that story. And unfortunately, I'd like to suggest to you, if this is your favorite story for that reason, because you really like the mayhem of it, uh, this story is not ultimately about whether we're allowed to copy Jesus' example of making a whip and um, going to town on Benny Hinn and uh, those kind of guys. Um, But no, it's not about that. Um, But The story does tell us something about Jesus' heart. It tells us something about who Jesus is. And I'd like to use it to make a number of applications. Uh, This is really why I wanted to preach it. uh, About righteous anger, about mission, and about the gospel hope that is found within Uh, this text. So let's read. It's John chapter 2, verses 13 uh, to 22. We're in the English Standard Version. You can Google it. You can, um, uh, if you have a Bible, and just uh, follow along. And uh, here is this well-known story. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And Making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, "Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken forty-six years to build this temple, And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is uh, the word of God. This text breaks down really simply with its narrative. The first section is just Jesus cleansing the temple, and then the second section is Jesus making a prophecy about uh, the temple in the last uh, five verses. And Jesus comes into Jerusalem because it is... Passover. He moves from the wedding in Canaan and he comes in to Jerusalem because it's Passover and we need to picture this as an incredible, incredible festival. Imagine the Rugby World Cup uh, in happening in New Zealand, happening locally and lots of people coming in and then magnify that by a lot more and add a religious dimension to it. Although there is a religious dimension to rugby in this country. Um, so But it's a big exciting, exciting time uh, for people. And so hundreds of thousands of Jews from all over the world would have come into Jerusalem at this time to celebrate Passover, right, which is that great historic act of redemption, uh, God bringing the people out of uh, Egypt. He passed over them uh, during the night, passed over the Israelite people, and they had blood on the door, um, and uh, killed the firstborn Egyptians, and this was a great celebration for the covenant people of Israel. And this also meant that business was booming at the temple. Now, that's not meant to be happening. The temple is not meant to be a place of business. Jesus calls the, the temple my father's house in verse 16. Right? That, by the way, is a direct claim to being the son of God. My father's house, called the temple. The temple was God's house. And it was meant to be a place of worship, not a marketplace, definitely not a place of trade. And I've talked about this a lot over, over this year's book. Um, King David... King David is an important figure here, and he's actually an important figure in this text. And we'll see why. But David was convicted that he was living in this ginormous house made out of uh, Lebanese uh, cedar wood, and God's Ark of the Covenant was sitting in a little tent, which is called the tabernacle. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David says that he will not sleep until he finds a place for a house of God. And that place was Mount Zion in Jerusalem. David had such a profound sense of zeal. right? That's what he cared about, that God would be exalted and worshipped. Of course, David's wasn't actually the one that got to build this house for the Lord, this temple, but his son Solomon did. That temple is destroyed during the exile, it comes in, it's burned to the ground, and then it is rebuilt after the exile. Okay, so we talk about the second temple. At this second temple that we've got here, sacrifices were offered daily uh, for sin, they were offered uh, as worship towards God under the terms of the Old Covenant. The first temple had taken seven years to build. This temple, we're told, has taken 46 years in total. Can you imagine that? Like they've got a crew of people working almost nonstop on this. It's taken 46 years to build this. And in Jerusalem, at Mount Zion, you've got this immense, immense structure, God's house, the temple. It stood as a monument to God's presence in Israel. The source of the most immense national and religious pride that you could have was sitting there up on that hill. And King Herod the Great had made renovations to this temple. This was a few hundred years old at this point. And Herod the Great came in, made some reservations, renovations, and additions, and he added on something which was called the Court of the Gentiles. You might have heard of that. The Court of the Gentiles. And that is where this takes place. In the outer big court of the Gentiles. There's a big porch, there's a place where we can uh, look out uh, and, and and look over uh, this this courtyard and there's a place uh, there for for priests to come and, and talk and share and give instructions to uh, to non Jews. That's the location of the cleansing of the temple with this homemade whip. And before some atheist, or if you run into some, some silly thing on social media talking about the Bible contradicting itself, it is true that this occasion here in John chapter 2 happened at the first Passover in Jesus' earthly ministry of three years. The cleansing of the temple is mentioned again close to when Jesus was to die. Okay, that's in uh, Matthew 21, uh, Mark chapter 11, Luke 19, and this is in John chapter 2. The safe assumption, given that the times have been mentioned uh, quite clearly, this one taking place at Passover, that one taking place right before Jesus' death, is that Jesus cleansed the temple on at least two occasions. Right, that's what happened. And We see here a, a real scene of chaos. Can you just imagine this? Jesus fashions a homemade whip out of cords, and he really just goes to town. He, he does. Um, is anyone? This is your favorite story, anyone? Right? Anyone feel a certain affinity for this for the story? Yes couple people, that's good. They're all guys, unsurprising. Um, and so you've got these animals, you've got these money changers, you've got overturned tables. Jesus is actually not just sitting meekly and mildly, he is getting very, very uh, upset and he turns this place over on himself, on his own. And quite simply, what had made him upset was that the court of the Gentiles had been, was being used as a place to sell sacrificial animals. All these animals that are mentioned in this text, sheep, oxen, pigeon, were animals that were offered as sacrifices at the temple. And then it says that there are money changers. And the way this works is, most likely, you had Jews going to the temple to buy an animal to sacrifice but they've only got roman currency and so they felt it was a bad idea and it was unclean to use roman currency to then go buy a sheep and then go and have uh, that animal sacrificed so what they would do is they take the money they go to a money changer they get them swap that roman currency for some temple currency Right, so you got some temple money and then they use the temple money to go and buy uh, the animal and everyone is taking a cut and so there's there's good there's good uh understanding. Of what was going on back then, that the animals that you bought there in the court of the Gentiles would have been the most expensive animals you could buy, if you go back a, uh, a, a few kilometers, you could get some cheaper animals. But if you go buy them directly at the temple it 's very expensive modern day example of this is buying a coke and a sandwich in an airport, right your whole week 's wages to buy uh, to buy a coke that 's what 's happening there. And in Mark chapter 11, I know this is probably not exactly the same event, but the chief priest, the man by the name of Caiaphas, was so upset with Jesus cleansing the temple and disrupting this sacrificial system that we have to, have to uh, understand that he would have been in on this, Money, uh, animal trading sacrificial system. He had to have been in on it. He had to at least have been okay with it. He had that much authority. If there was trading happening on the court of the Gentiles, it was because the chief priest had given the thumbs up for that to happen and he had chosen to allow it. There's a possibility that he too and Josephus and other historians uh, will say this, there's a good possibility that he was taking a cut of money off these trading of animals. The chief priest, a Levite, who was supposed to be provided for by God's people, was making himself rich off a trading business opportunity. Not what God wants. Jesus was angry. To make matters worse, think of it. The court of the Gentiles. What's a Gentile? A non Jew. Every single person here, I would imagine, to, is a Gentile. The court of the Gentiles existed to allow non Jews who'd become God fearers or who were interested in finding out about the God of the Bible. Yahweh, to come, to pray, to ask questions, to receive instructions. If you were looking to become a God-fearer, someone, a Gentile, who converted to becoming a worshiper of Yahweh, this is one of the key places you would go. This would be a safe place to go and ask questions. And instead, you have a marketplace. You have a marketplace. Not priests offering uh, scriptural understanding. Not a place for you to pray. But a pigeon for sale at a marked up price. And it makes sense that Passover would be the occasion whereby Gentiles were very likely to come into the court of the Gentiles and Uh, seek instruction, right? Jews had gone out all over uh, the world. Passover was one of the key times in the year that they would return to Jerusalem and return to the temple. They would be bringing Gentile friends with. If your neighbor is a, uh, is a Gentile and you've been reaching out to him and you've been trying to tell him to leave his paganism behind and worship the true God, you'd say, hey, come with my family, we'll, we'll look after you, and let's go to, up to the temple. A man such as Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, he was a God-fearing Gentile. So that's the kind of guy that would come in. Now Jesus truly had a heart for the Gentiles. Jesus was a Jew of the tribe of Judah, but he had a heart for Gentiles. In Mark eleven seventeen, Jesus quotes Isaiah 56, verse 7, and he says this, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? We must understand that God, yes, he used national Israel for a very specific, wonderful purpose. But the blessing of Abraham was always meant to go through the Jews to the whole world. So that the descendants of Abraham would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. This was the Jewish people, specifically the high priest, keeping Gentiles from coming to know God. This was against God's purposes. And so you have here the chief priest not doing his job by allowing a place of worship to be turned into a a house of trade, and Gentiles just kept out of worship entirely, kept away from knowledge, kept away from instruction. It is not good. And Jesus is very angry. Very angry. And we're told there that the disciples, in verse 17, remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. That comes from Psalm 69, verse 9, King David. Zeal for your house will consume me. And the full verse says, zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Meaning, David was so zealous that God would be worshipped purely and rightly at the temple that he was faced with approach. Simply, people that hated God and weren't interested in doing what God said hated David because he was so passionate about God's name. And he was so passionate about having that temple sacrificial system functioning rightly so that wicked men hated David on God's behalf. In a greater way, this is true of Jesus, the one greater than David. One commentator summarizes, Why then does he drive the buyers and sellers out of the temple? It is that he may bring back to its original purity the worship of God that had been corrupted by the wickedness of man. Okay? And Jesus then makes a prophecy about the temple. He stresses his claim as the son of God in cleansing his father's house and then he promises a sign, a future sign. He would destroy this temple and raise it up in three days. And I am so thankful because that John explains exactly what this means in the text, doesn't he? Like, because it's kind of hard to explain to someone that Jesus is the true temple and the temple is his body raised up in in three days. It's a hard thing to explain that you're replacing a 46-year... a boating that took 46 years to bode. you're replacing it with a man raised from the dead? Yes. John tells us, John tells us, verse 21, he was speaking about the temple of his body. He interprets it for us. God bless John. Thank you. Um, And you know that three years later, approximately three years after this event in John chapter 2, the second half of Psalm 69 comes true that Jesus was so zealous for God's house that the reproaches of those who hated him fell down upon Jesus. The chief priest, Caiaphas, used Jesus' prophecy about the temple against him. You can read about that in Matthew chapter 21. He says, you said you would destroy the temple and raise it up in three days. That was what was used to charge Jesus with blasphemy and ultimately put him to death upon the cross. The reproaches fell hardest at the cross. And when Jesus was hung up on that cross, we're told in Matthew 27, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. What everyone assumed was that Jesus saying he would destroy this temple, what they were worried about was that Jesus would mount an army and come in and break it down. He would take it down with his hands. But he didn't do that. They didn't understand what three days meant. Instead, we're told, and as we, we just sung, When Christ was on the cross, the veil into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place in the temple, the copy of the presence of God was torn in two, showing metaphorically that access to God had been opened up. The veil was torn in two because Christ entered into the presence of God on the third day after rising from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven, sat down. Jesus entered that holy place so that we might go with him. And so Jesus is then our great high priest, our perfect spotless sacrifice and our true temple through whom we must go to be reconciled to God. I put it this way Jesus cleanses the temple, right? Jesus cleanses the temple, but Jesus is the clean temple. That's what this is all pointing to. Jesus is the clean temple through whom God is worshipped rightly. And through that atoning death on the cross, he cleanses us and makes us reconciled worshipers. And that's just great news. Because we're Gentiles. We're not Jews. Being Gentiles won't keep us away. Being a woman won't keep you away. Being a child won't keep you away. Being a eunuch or a disabled or someone from a forbidden union between a, a Jew and a Gentile, that won't keep you from the temple. Because Jesus has cleaned the temple and he washes us clean so that we might come to God. That is the good news of the gospel and why there is no name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. That's what this story is about. Now, let's apply it. All right. First one, righteous anger. Have to talk about this. Right? Have to talk about this. It's in the text. This is hard. Have you noticed that people are perpetually outraged today? Everyone is angry about something and the rest of us are just angry that everyone else is angry and talking about it on Facebook and Twitter and social media and in the newspapers. There's a meme floating around. I'm going to exegete a meme. Um, There's a meme floating around, and it says this. The next time someone tells you to be like Jesus, remind them that overturning tables is the real option. Right? We, we see why they would say that? You can laugh. Not that I'm not funny, but that's fine. Um, so we've got this outrage culture, and we've got social media, and we've got to wonder, how do we live in a culture where everyone is angry about everything? Well, I will say to us, and I'm thinking this through myself, this text shows us that there is a form of anger that is righteous and good, and we must be able to have it. Psalm four says, Be angry and do not sin. Not don't be angry and do not sin. Be angry and do not sin. Jesus is true and he's pure. He is righteously angry. When we hear about things like abuse, some of you have been abused, some of you have been hurt, some of you have been taken for a ride. The right response from people in hearing that is anger. No, who cares? We must be able to say that. However, Understand that Jesus' anger is tied to God's law being violated and people being kept from him. There's a rightness to this this anger. There's a real, real rightness to it. There's a godliness to this anger. It lines up so clearly with God's word being violated. So we must see that. Some people use social media especially to trip up, to set traps, to destroy, to just simply pick a fight. Don't be that person. It's not the same. And I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful grateful that no one here seems to do it, but their are discernment blogs and ministries and people that use Twitter and other social media, and all they're doing is just criticizing, criticizing, looking for holes, and then just self-justifying by saying, I'm being like Jesus. To that we should say, rebuke, Criticism, correction is godly. It's godly when it lines up with God's Word. But a critical spirit is not. And if we miss the fact that Jesus cleansed the temple, as far as we know, only twice in 33 years of life and three years of earthly ministry, We must understand that it was a small part of what he did. He had the ability to do it, and he did do it. But what about, and you must ask yourself, what about weeping? He was far more likely weeping over Jerusalem than cleansing that temple. What about spending time with people, being hospitable, washing feet, preaching, loving, serving? He did all those things. We must not compartmentalize. And at the same time, realize have you worked this out? You're not Jesus. You're not Jesus. There is a very real stance, and this is a cosmic event. This is a divine judgment. This is God cleansing his own temple for the sake of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God and the true temple being set up in Christ in his body. This is not a normal occasion. This is not exactly the same as Jesus. This is not exactly uh, the same as us getting upset on Facebook, just not. Be angry and do not sin. And I want to uh, mention as well, Ephesians chapter four. This great verse, uh, there. It says in verse twenty-nine, Ephesians four twenty-nine. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for boding up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. That does not mean you only have to say nice things. Otherwise, Jesus would have been sinning against the Pharisees when he called them a brood of vipers and whitewashed tombs. Was Jesus giving grace to them? Yes, he was. He was pulling them away from their error. But we must seek to build up. So righteous anger, it is a thing. Use it cautiously and carefully and biblically. Secondly, mission. This whole metaphor of the temple, it doesn't stop with Jesus, it is also given to His people. right? It says in First Timothy 3:15, that you may know how to act in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth, the household of God. It's using temple language. First Peter chapter 2 says this, You have come to him, a living stone rejected by man, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, that's a temple, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. If we apply this to mission we need to understand the role of the church. The king builds the temple comprising not just Jews, but Gentiles, a temple of living stones, people. And so the role of the church, the mission of the church, is to help the true king build the household of God with living stones that it might be a true temple who worships God. With Christ as the chief cornerstone and worship will be done through this temple eternally. Jesus is the true temple. He also makes us into a temple. Thirdly, and I feel like I need some more thought on this and I think everyone, I just, here's an application to you. Think about this deeply. Be careful of creating stumbling blocks to Jesus and the gospel. Because that's what trade in the court of the Gentiles was, a stumbling block to coming to know God. In James chapter 2, there's some biblical examples of stumbling blocks. It talks about showing partiality and only... Welcoming the rich and important and leaving the poor and unimportant sin saying, I have no time for you. That's the way of creating a stumbling block and not viewing all people as image bearers. In First Corinthians 11, there was a stumbling block uh, created when uh, the... Um, Corinthian church. Some people would eat all the bread and drink all the wine so that the Lord's Supper could not take place. And some people would get be getting drunk on the communion wine and therefore other people couldn't have the Lord's Supper in the context of a fellowship meal. That is a stumbling block. It's saying you do not matter. In 1 Corinthians uh, 14, there speaks of worship being done decently and, and in order so that people might be able to understand. If gathered worship services are chaotic, they're being done uh, in a language that people cannot understand and that there's no flow to it at all, if there's just mayhem, that's a stumbling block to the gospel. Major hypocrisy, oh this is such a big one, major hypocrisy is an enormous stumbling block to the gospel. Parents, I'll say this, like for parents, like so many, how many children, how many children have been turned off the faith? and want nothing to do with it because they see their parents as being arrogant and prideful and saying one thing in church on a Sunday and living a complete different way during the rest of the week and never apologizing for it and never asking forgiveness. I feel that deeply, and therefore my wife and I, we have to remind ourselves, apologize to our children when we sin against them. There's so many ways that this can happen. Mistreatment of single people. Poor handling of scandals. Oh my goodness. Churches just acting like scandals do not matter. Deception. Unqualified church leaders with bad reputations keep people from coming to The gospel. To keep people away from Christ. Anytime we say to be saved, you need Jesus plus something. You're saved by, we were talking about this at the conference this weekend, Jesus plus your righteousness with God based on your works. Anything that we use to corrupt the gospel. Graceless. Christianity, graceless, graceless Christianity, where you're so proud of the rightness of your doctrine, but you've got no grace, no winsomeness, no love. That keeps people away. We need to be so careful. I remember, I don't want to talk too long here, but I remember a, a, a story of, of a pastor. Um, he was sitting on a plane and he was talking to the person next to him and the person said, oh, so you're the pastor of that church, the American one, that church in California. And the pastor said, yes. And then the guy volunteered. He said, you've got a lawyer in your church that is one of the most underhanded Dirty, corrupt lawyers in the entire state, and he's part of your church. I would never go uh, to uh, that church. They looked into it. Pastor got up and he said, told the story, and said, You are making the gospel impossible by your life hard words, but apparently in this case, it was justified. We need to be careful of stopping people from coming to God. And lastly, I want to finish on a positive thing, and that is hope. Israel's temple in Jerusalem, the worship there, had become corrupt. But if our true temple is Jesus Christ and he has ascended to the right hand of the Father, he is sat down and he is sat down as a king. If our king sits on the throne, if our true temple is in heaven, it cannot be corrupted or lost like Israel's in the earthly Jerusalem. And that should give us perfect hope. That we can always come to God.